bandwidth for JS Party is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Fridays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time. Head to changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. And now on to the show. Hello. Welcome to JS Party. I'm Rachel White, and we have a special guest for you this week with us. I'll let her introduce herself. Hey, I'm Tracy Hein, here with y'all today. Thank you for having me. And then obviously Michael's not here. And we also have <laughs> Alex. Alex. Alex Sexton, uh, Vir- Virgo. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's probably not true. I have no idea what my sign is. Cool. Uh, we have a lot of cool, fun things. I don't know, cool. We have exciting, semi-exciting, semi-cool, semi-fun things to talk to you about today. We're going to talk about documentation, what makes for good documentation, uh, non-blocking UI rendering. And then we're going to talk to Tracy about like the current state of Node.js and uh, what is being a community slash education person like and uh, what's going on this year with Node. Cool. Let's uh, jump right into the documentation. Uh, we're gonna talk about, you know, what makes good documentation to you. Uh, how how do you prefer to go about adding documentation to your projects? What are some best practices? What are projects that you like? Um, and I don't know. Who wants to start? Uh, I'll jump into it a little bit, just because I. This is something that it's just been this like wonderful sort of serendipitous week of, of hearing a lot about documentation. I was doing research for uh, learning node and kind of looking at the survey stuff that we had gotten from last winter's survey. And I, as I was reading through all of this data that we had, it was really odd because I kept reading about like what docs people were using to help learn node. And some people were saying like, oh yeah, these docs are great. And I'm seeing other people saying like, docs are terrible. They're super, they're substandard. Like what, what's going on? And I was just like, well, what docs are there? They're being really vague about it. And what I found out when I dug into it was that they weren't referring to the node API doc. They were referring to uh, docs from authors with like NPM packages. Oh, yeah. So it was just this really interesting, like I knew that the documentation has been a struggle for us in Node. And so when they said that, I was like, oh my God, that makes so much sense because a number of prolific authors in the community early on were contributing to Node itself. And so like they were doing a really good job with documenting their own projects and packages. And that ended up educating a lot of people on like best practices for what you should be doing because they had to watch these projects evolve. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but part of that was if it, it kind of brought into the question for me, because when I started writing Node, I remember like, wow, these API docs don't make any sense to me. Like they make all of these assumptions because a lot of the people who had written them had written other programming languages prior. So they kind of yeah. assumed that you knew these constructs. And so like, yeah, I was like, wow, that's, I have to dig into this because I, I, it's really hard for me to believe that like, people thought that they weren't naming the Node API docs as the thing, and they are much better now. Um, but they still need work because they're not entry level. So basically, the community poll gave you the results that like a ton of people weren't actually using the documentation that you wanted them to. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that like I, I feel like that whenever I'm writing or working with a new language or project and I'm jumping in, if it, if there's good documentation, uh, which we'll talk about later, then it's super helpful. But I think that something else that people don't really take into consideration is like people have different learning styles too. So if there's other ways that people give you examples, you're going to go and check those other sites. Yeah. Or if there's, you know, sites that have uh, this is kind of, you know, dumb and a little ridiculous, but like, I know that often if I, when I was doing more front end stuff and I needed to know like CSS or HTML questions, 
you always get, I feel like the worst results come up first on Google. Like you're going to get those W3 schools and the stack overflow questions that are giving you the information that you don't want. And I don't know, how do you, how do you think that like a good way to remedy this problem could be? Well, so that was, yeah, that was my first, um, I think Michael and I had talked about this a little while back and our data definitely backed it up where I was, you know, it's sort of this, like, if you don't write good documentation, then you don't get to choose where people are going to get the information (laughs) to understand your project. Yeah. So I don't know about other projects in JavaScript, but I know in Node, what ended up happening is how every, like the majority of people who are learning Node then are learning it from going to Stack Overflow. And then combined with documentation. And what's really interesting about that is that a lot of our collaborators aren't the ones answering questions in Stack Overflow. That's true. So it's sort of like, well, then it's even more so like if you're seeing a bunch of people who are sort of talking about um, good practices in writing Node, they're not like we're not leading that effort in Stack Overflow. It's whoever has the energy to be answering questions in Stack Overflow, which is like super awesome. But yeah, Stack Overflow also has that difficult to attain barrier of entry where like you're not able to contribute until you've participated a certain amount of time and vice versa. It's like one of those weird situations where you can't be a part of a thing until you're a part of a thing. But how do you get to be a part of a thing? Um, So that's. Now I'm actually wondering, do you think that there's like a responsibility of maintainers to not only write good documentation, but to also maybe if you see somebody in the community that is stepping up and taking part to be able to build upon the good work that you've already done? Do you think that there's a responsibility to maintainers to be able to take that and make it and kind of like bring it into the process where if, you know, they're like, if you're not finding what you're looking for here, here are other recommended resources that you should take a look at. Well, so that's Miles Bourne and I were talking about this yesterday and we were talking about like something that I struggle with for resources in education is, um, there are so many ways to learn, like even just online, not even in person is going to people who write blog posts, you know, they're Googling for it, stack overflow and even stack overflow now has this really cool thing where like, it isn't just the question sections. They actually have example sections now, like sort of a doc, I think it's called documentation and it's, um, it's starting to get very plain examples. It's not just like, you know, docs, what we think of docs oftentimes are more like a definition, yeah. uh, then and how to, or getting started. Um, but I consider those documentation. I think it's really great. So like for me, it's like, I want there to be one source of truth. Um, also having started in Python, I find that it's really easy for new learners if they don't, they're not inundated with so many places that they have to look at. But yeah, um, in note, look at this point, uh, I don't think we get to choose that. And so instead of trying to control it, it's like maybe we encourage people, you know, maintainers, contributors, uh, that if there is a place that they like to hang out, then they should voice, you know, their knowledge. And, you know, we have this place that you can go, you know, in the node GitHub repo that you can go to ask for help slash help. And so like, that's great. But, you know, there's a, as I've said, like Stack Overflow is the number one place people are asking questions for Node, And it's kind of built for that. So that's great. But then maybe we should be encouraging people like what we consider subject matter experts to be contributing there. Yeah. Yeah. So aside from just finding the good documentation and you know, the places that people can go. Um, I'm trying now I'm starting to think about, you know, the actual process of writing the documentation and um, what are good practices that people can use while writing their code in order to make it easier on them in the long run. Um, I know personally, previous previously, I've used like doc block type stuff while I'm writing to describe uh, the actual you know, things that are in the code. But I think Alex writes a lot more code than you and I do nowadays. So maybe he can give us some better insight into this. I'm not sure I can. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) 
uh, specifically, what are you looking for more insight in? So like, what do you, do you do anything while you're in the regular like dev process of working on a feature or a code base in order to make it easier for documentation at the end? To be written? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I was misunderstanding uh, to be, to be, yeah. Um, so like documentation kind of has levels, you know, like yeah. there's like the minimum documentation I feel like are publicly documenting the function signatures of the uh, public API of any software, right? So it's like, here are all the functions and their names, and here are the arguments that they take, and here's what the, it returns. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, that's the minimum viable documentation, I think. Anything below that is uh, useless. Uh, like, yeah. you have to just read the code. It's no longer documentation. So one thing that's become more popular uh, in the past six months to a year is typing JavaScript. So for JavaScript specific stuff, if you use Flow or if you use TypeScript, you can generate that documentation automatically. And so Stripe uses types uh, as like a build step and builds them out. Uh, we don't gain a lot of like build time error checking because a lot of it's too nebulous. So there's uh, like not a ton of third party library support for this stuff. But the thing we gain from it is just automatic documentation for for every API signature uh, across all of our code. Uh, okay. And so I, I think that something like that can be really useful for getting, uh, well, A, automatically updating documentation when code changes is, is a pretty important thing I found because documentation becoming out of date is actually maybe worse than something not being documented at all. And and so like when you have types built directly into the code, then those things get updated automatically on every build or whatever. The docs just get built with the code. Um, but then on top of that, like you kind of have to have. Uh, then it becomes a cultural thing. It's like, uh, are you allowed to ship something without writing words about why it works, a way it works, and how you might use it, or examples of how you might use it together? So at Stripe, we actually have um, an internal. I think we call it a. Uh, uh, front-end explorer. So we have a bunch of components and some are like really generic and, you know, it's a button or a date picker or something like that. But some are like, this is the thing that you use in the selector for the settings where you change your avatar to like, it's very specific, but you still want to document that. And so this is a place where you can throw example code of like the different kind of like settings that you can put on it. And then it will automatically render that stuff and then pull in all the types and render all the, the function calls. And so a new developer at Stripe can go to this page and say like, oh, I need like a, a menu over here that I have to do. Let me look at these menus. Do I need to write a new one? Can I look at these? And so that's fully cultural past the the mandatory typing though. So um, yeah. I, I think it's a good culture to build though. It's extremely important. I agree. Um... Tracy, I guess either of you, what are some code bases that you've used that you are like increasingly impressed by how they handle their documentation? I mean, for me, honestly, like in JavaScript, I was trying to chat with some people today about like what they were inspired by. Um, but I'm still blown away by MDN and like the process for that because they also make it so incredibly easy to contribute back to it, which I think is incredibly important because. A lot of people, and I learned this uh, painfully early, was that like a lot of people forget that docs are living and that there's bugs and they need oh, to be yeah. fixed, right? Like it's like you just like I assume like very naively that it was like oh, it's the documentation, it's correct, so I must be doing something wrong. And then I found out you know very quickly that that wasn't the case. Um, yeah, you know, so that's tough. And then, but that's and that's in JavaScript, right? So. Django, you know, James Sokol was giving a great talk earlier this week, and he and I were both in Python before. And, you know, it's tough to beat that when it comes to that level of project. You know, you've got versioning. I believe you have it in multiple languages, which we'll t I think we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, uh, you know, spoken languages. There's the Django book too, right? Uh, yeah. That, that gets updated yeah. along with the code, I think. Uh, yeah. Python has read the docs.io or whatever, right? Uh, isn't that a thing? Oh, yeah. Uh, kind of just like a central repository for different project docs. I think NPM kind of becomes that for a lot of JavaScript projects because you write the readme with the docs in it and then NPM hosts it uh, and you end up like hitting the NPM, NPM page. 
but uh, the read the docs thing is nice because it's versioned um, and all that kind of stuff. So you can kind of go back in time and see what the docs were for your version. And uh, they may be more uniform as well. Yeah, I've used read the docs, at least at one company. And especially it was because uh, the founder, Eric Holscher, uh, we worked together at Urban Airship. And that's uh, so we were using that. We were dog tuning it quite a bit. It was great. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not super stoked about writing RST, but, um, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, I much prefer Markdown, but it's just in terms of that, like it's really useful. And, uh, the, the documentation in read the docs is incredible. Yeah. <laughs> so they're, yeah, uh, I, they're at least practicing what they preach. Yeah. yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, I agree. MDN is, is a really good example of just something that is like persisted over time and continuously gets better. Uh, I know Janet Swisher out in Austin is uh, I believe full-time on MDN. I think there are other people uh, that are full-time uh, doc writers for MDN. So uh, it, once your company gets big enough, it definitely makes sense to hire technical writers and spend a lot of time putting effort into making it better and better. Yeah. And communicating with the technical writers, not just giving them code and being like, <laughs> have fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, as I say with resentment, Tracy knows why. Um, <laughs> I would, I want to, I want to like bring up Johnny five as an example for a special exception to documentation. Um, especially like not cause I'm biased and I love NodeBots. Well, yeah, I am biased and I do love NodeBots, but I think that the reason that I love NodeBots so much is because of how good the documentation is. Um, it, it, it like touches on the, like, the API for using it, it gives you like visual diagrams on how to use it. There's like code examples for so many different microcontrollers. So like you can come into it with so many different ways of your preferred learning style and there's something there for everybody. And I don't know that I think that's probably my favorite. It makes me very happy. Mm. Uh, I'm going to toot Stripe's own horn a little bit, but but Stripe is pretty well known for a good documentation of their API, which is a little different than, than what we're talking about. But, you know, like as a company, if you, if you have something that people have to integrate into their software, you need uh, pretty good documentation on that. And, and one thing that Stripe does that a lot of people still don't do, but, but people catch on to every once in a while, is if you have a Stripe account and you're logged into it, there's a bunch of data that you have that's specific to you and you have your uh, test keys and all that stuff to hit the API. And so if you then go to the documentation page and you're still logged in, all of the docs are kind of automatically made specific to you. So any of the documentation like calls, like if it's a curl or Ruby call or anything, like you can look at it in different languages, you can just copy and paste it and run it. And it is correct for your user. And the data that we show you that it returns is the data from your actual like account. Um, and wow. so with some, with some scraping. And so it actually like, makes it to where all of the documentation is kind of living in the sense that it's actually making calls uh, it, to some extent. We, you know, we uh, don't we don't make charges every time you look at the charge page, but it really brings people into a, like a quick, firm understanding of what they need to send and what they need to come back so they can copy and paste and verify that the data looks the same and all that kind of stuff. And that's been really successful for us. And I would encourage everyone to steal that idea. Uh, I encourage everyone to steal that idea too. It would make everybody's life easier. <laughs> yeah, that sounds <laughs> like, amazing. That's that's what happens when you write good documentation. It encourages people to like have a good connection with your product or what you're trying to get people to use, and then they'll tell other people about how great it is to use. So I, there's there's really no excuse for having bad documentation other than uh i don't know it's work <laughs> yeah. yeah other yeah. than it, it's work <laughs> it's a lot of work <laughs> it's like whether you're you're doing the right thing you know? <laughs> and you have yeah. the, the people to do it yeah yeah true no it's a lot i mean that's not i'm saying like that's and that is an excuse sometimes sometimes there is just not enough hours in the day unfortunately so and that yeah. seems like it's often the first thing to go is it's also true that like in your first iteration of your application uh, or business or whatever you're documenting, the documentation kind of flows out because you have such a small service area uh, and you don't have any like, I mean, it's kind of like greenfield and code. It's like, you just write whatever you want. 
Uh, but as soon as you update something, now you have to manage both the old and the new. And then you update more and the surface area grows. And by the time you're 3.0, the docs are massive. All the examples are out of date. Like uh, It's kind of a snowball of work. It's not like you would assume that since you kind of touched on this before, Tracy, is that like docs are living and you have to keep updating them because the code, like even if the code wasn't changing, you'd probably still need to continuously make them better. But the code is changing. So you have to keep updating them based on the changes of the code and making them better uh, all while not breaking anyone's workflow or, or anything like that. And so the work actually increases over time. It, like it feels like, oh, I wrote all the docs and now I'll only have to do little updates in the future. But I feel like it kind of is this uh, early big spike and then it drops down and then over time it far surpasses. Like eventually you're a, a massive something, you know, if, if you're successful. Uh, and and you have 12 people full-time documentation writers and programmers and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was like, that was a, the living doc situation is definitely, a, um, I, I found it to be a problem if people don't make that, a, or if there's a, a mixed, like a conflict in manage expectations, because uh, I think there was for a time, um, James Snell spent an exorbitant amount of time updating a lot of the docs. Uh, I believe it was at the beginning of this year and uh, for Node. And part of that was that uh, there had been a ton of updates uh, in releases. And instead of people, like people aren't pulling open source code for Node now, like they're looking at the docs and uh, which you would expect from a mature project, but the docs weren't keeping up quick enough. So then you had people arguing, saying like, no, this is what the docs say. And we're like, the docs are out of date. <laughs> You know, like that's, yeah. we're, we're working on it, but like, that's really <laughs> tough, you know? Yeah, for sure. Uh, what, one way to try to fight against that, that accidentally occurs, um, some somewhat in, uh, that thing I was talking about at Stripe where we run actual calls to code to try to generate the example output of our API endpoints is that, um, we have to build the docs and run tests against all of the different calls. So Essentially, if we have docs that make a call that is no longer compatible with our API, the tests will fail. And so we may not have new information in there, but we can, and guarantee is a very uh, poor word to use here, but we can somewhat try to check with tests that all of our documentation continues to currently run. Like all documentation should have an example and it should have a known output. And you should run all of those examples as tests. And if that output no longer matches, then you need to update the docs and the test should fail. So that, that can be not insanely difficult. Like as long as you could kind of extract out the examples from the documentation and run them separately, then that feels like a, a, a pretty simple, like a few lines of like running all of the examples, uh, files in the example folder or something. Mm. Give it a shot. Yeah. All right. I think it's time for a break. When we come back, we'll be talking about non-blocking UI rendering. First sponsor of the show today is our friends at Sentry, helping you to find and fix your errors in your applications. You can start tracking your errors today totally free. They support React, Angular, Ember, Vue, Backbone, and Node frameworks like Express and Koa. You can view actual code and stack traces, including support for source maps. See the errors URL, parameters, and session information, and even prompt your user for feedback when you have front-end errors. Head to jsparty.fm slash sentry. Start tracking your errors for free today. No credit card required. Get off the ground with their free plan, and when you're ready to expand your usage, simply pay as you go. Once again, jsparty.fm slash sentry. And now back to the show. And we're back. During this next section, we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, kind of maybe a segment light about concurrency in the UI thread or non-blocking rendering techniques to make the browser not lag whenever you try to do things or render things, render other things or scroll. So we, we've talked a lot about in the past about maybe like network performance. And we talked somewhat last week about uh, isomorphic JavaScript. And uh, as, a, as a refresher, isomorphic JavaScript uh, is a name that was given to code that renders on the server and the client by uh, Spike Brem at Airbnb uh, back in the backbone days um, when, when we used to do it the hard way. Uh, so isomorphic JavaScript refers to JavaScript you can render on the server and then whenever the page renders, the 
we use the word uh, rehydrate. The, the front end code rehydrates all of the nodes that are already in the DOM and then things uh, start working magically. And so you have a server side render, you get SEO, you get uh, fast rendering, you might not get fast things to work. So if, if your JavaScript still takes a really long time to parse and execute, then none of your buttons work yet, but maybe your links do or something like that. It could be, could be cool. So the kind of last section of that is more along the lines of in-app, uh, like during the execution of the application and the use of the app application, we still do a lot of uh, rendering and re-rendering. And React was pretty big. So like in the backbone days, you would say there was a change in my view. Let me kill all of the HTML, or, or like either you did it by hand, like with jQuery, you updated something, or you said, let me kill everything in this entire view and then in inject all new HTML uh, into there. And that was uh, sad for, for many reasons, especially performance uh, and layout and all sorts of things. Um, and in the React world, the, the whole magic was the virtual DOM. You did a DOM diff on the virtual DOM, like the previous state, the new state, and then you'd only re-render the parts that changed. And that was a pretty big deal. But we still uh, are in a world where a lot of times, like you're switching pages, right? So you're you're taking um, uh, you you click on a menu button and the URL changes, and you render a totally different page with almost you know, like only the menus match. And so DOM diffing doesn't do much for you there because the the whole DOM is a diff. And actually, in early React and early Ember uh, versions of this DOM diffing stuff for large refresh page changes like this were a big problem because so many things would mismatch the diff that it actually became faster to just replace the HTML instead of actually going into each individual place and updating. Like, let's change this span to a div and then update every single attribute on it to be something else and then update all the content inside of it rather than just blowing it all away and, and throwing in uh, new code. So where I think we're headed in this interesting space um, that that is coming out of the need for faster, uh, lighter weight, cooler animations, all sorts of stuff is uh, concurrency and non-blocking and like piecemeal rendering. And so we have the native little API in the browser called uh, request animation frame. And so request animation frame is a, is a tick, right? It says uh, every 12 milliseconds, I'm going to call you pretty regularly, but much better than uh, set timeout or set uh, interval or whatever is going to do. Those can vary wildly in timing. Uh, but if you do a request animation frame, you get, you know, every 12 milliseconds. Uh, that way you can get 60 frames a second. Uh, if you do an animation that works inside of the request animation frame, then you can get a 60 frames per second animation. When we're talking about rendering, much like... Uh, you want to fit any animation you're doing inside of the request animation frame 12 millisecond block. You want to fit any rendering that you're doing in your page inside that block as well. Otherwise, you're going to stop that request animation frame from being able to be called. You're going to stop the browser from being able to scroll smoothly. You're going to stop anything that is in the UI thread, um, the rendering, the layout, all that stuff, from being able to happen until you release, uh, you're done running your code. And so, in React, uh, a lot of times we have DOM diffs and things like that and re-renders that take a lot more than 12 milliseconds. And so even though we have this fast, cool virtual DOM diffing thing, we're in a situation where we're lagging the browser and we're uh, causing jank and all that kind of stuff because of the, the rendering style. Uh, and you know, we'll take 30 milliseconds to render everything or 300 milliseconds if it's crazy. So the future, uh, I think, here is is in kind of concurrent or uh, non-blocking um, rendering engines. And so React has been working for a long time on this. It's called React Fiber. Um, other um, engines are also working on this. There's Ember Concurrency, which is, um, it's not only for rendering, it's, it can be doing other things. So you, you're doing less than the UI thread, but it's not necessarily a piecemeal rendering of, of the DOM. But there's a, like a good gist um, that, I, that I'll put in the show notes about like what React Fiber is, when you can expect it. Uh, there's a talk uh, at React Next 2016. It comes from a lot of... Re there's a team at Facebook that works on React, and they've been like researching how to make this uh, good for like two years. And it's finally like pretty close. 
the first version will be completely backwards compatible. Um, and then in the future, they'll kind of like start adding more primitives for like deferred updates. Um, you can also imagine like you want to update something and it takes longer than a frame of time to do. And then you want to update it again before it's even done. And so you actually end up with this big, long stack of things that has to pop off each time and it blocks. Uh, and so it can also like, if you're going to change something and you haven't got to it yet, and then you give it another event to change it, it'll just throw away the middle thing and be able to just go straight to the ending thing. Like all sorts of advanced architecture for rendering like, like that, which really brings JavaScript rendering much closer to something uh, like the way that it happens on, on native devices, which I think should make performance a lot better. I just talked for, for a lot of minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I enjoy the is fiber ready yet. This is like the the most helpful site for a like technology that's going to be available soon, but isn't because it like shows you all of the things that have been done already for passing tests. And then the ones that are close. Oh, God, there's children crying. Sorry. Um, <laughs> and then there's also like the failing one. So if people were like involved in it and wanted to fix it, they probably could. That's pretty neat. Yeah. It kind of harkening back to the documentation thing is these sites the is something ready yet or is something yet it goes back i think all the way to are we fast yet was probably the first one and it was mm -hmm. like uh firefox trying to catch up their rendering engine to v8 and safari and stuff like that i think uh or not ready the like uh spider monkey versus v8 and stuff like that but then there was one for docs too right it was uh, uh do you remember it was in order to get MDN listed above all of the W3 uh, schools sites? It's like, are we for are we first yet? That was it. Are we fast yet? And then are we first yet? Uh, and then there was kind of an explosion of some. Are we something yet? Uh, is fiber ready yet? Is, is a good one, too. Anyways, that was a tangent on a tangent. Yeah, I was actually trying like while you're talking, I was trying to figure out like I am. A, I am always curious to see when something like this is coming along, if there is like a not framework version of it because i came from like the tiny percentage of people who were trying to write javascript without using a major framework which turns into the no framework framework uh but i'm not seeing any incremental rendering uh like packages that would be worth <laughs> i'd love to hear about it if somebody knows about it <laughs> the kind of the idea of incremental rendering assumes you're doing that maybe the reason why is because like it assumes you're already using a library to do batch yeah. rendering, right? And so it's kind yeah. of like a thing to undo a thing you added. Uh, right. And so from, also there might just be too much going on. So so honestly, like if you're from like the world of uh, like web components and let the web APIs do everything and uh, and and all that stuff, where you're rendering HTML uh, and stuff and CSS inside web components and they work before the JavaScript executes the browsers already do rendering in this way. Uh, and so that would probably be your answer is just don't use any framework and don't use any like use, use web components, I think would be the, the mm. standards, uh, small, uh, no library version of, of this or very similar, I think. Cool. All right. We're going to go to another break. If you're looking for trusted freelance talent, ready to join your team right now, I mean like within the week, call upon my friends at TopTal, T-O-P-T-A-L.com. And as a listener of the show, you might actually be one of those developers or designers looking for awesome freelance, independent contractor type opportunities where you can still be a remote worker. You can still have the freedom you have right now, which means you can travel anywhere, you can be anywhere and do what you do. We love TopTal. They've been supporting this show for a very long time. They're really good friends of ours. If you want a personal introduction, I'd be glad to give that to you. Email me, adam at changelaw.com. Otherwise, head to toptal.com. That's T-O-P-T-A-L.com to learn more. Tell them Adam from Changelog sent you. And now back to the show. So we're back. Next, we're going to talk to Tracy about what it is like to work for the node foundation what's going on with node what does she do she's just gonna tell us all these good things about her job and the community so tell us what it is you do exactly for the node foundation oh my goodness okay so i am the education community manager i get to wear a bunch of different hats so uh, it's sort of along the lines of what people, a lot of people don't realize like what the Node Foundation does or like what it's like 
to work full time in open source. And so, um, a couple of things I like to say first is that there is not as much coding as you would imagine. And sometimes that's sad, <laughs> but, uh, a lot of the focus is around people and sort of, uh, working on, uh, helping people collaborate together, especially when it's really tough for them to do so. And then, um, yeah, the other part of that is like, so the node foundation itself, uh, is this like mass of different groups that work together. So there's the node project itself, which is, uh, comprised of the TSC, which is the technical steering committee. Uh, and under that, I believe that's the way it's structured is, uh, the CTC, the core technical committee. And so those are people who are, uh, like working on the code bases in different working groups for the code that makes node run as well as documentation, um, and evangelism and things like translation. And then there's uh, the community committee, which is very newly chartered. Uh, and that is a place that was created uh, that I helped get chartered at the beginning of this year after we'd worked on it for quite some time to give voice to community. And so that's really interesting because a lot of programming foundations don't have that level of voice. Uh, so, you know, it's not that like we have, so, you know, community is a very like, weird, ambiguous, hand-wavy word because it's communities, right? It's a whole ecosystem of, of groups around the world. And it can be people who are writing NPM packages, or it could be, you know, projects like, you know, Express or, um, you know, the TSC is part of the community as well. And then you have all of these events like Node School and NodeBots who have like helped keep Node a thing, you know, when their code isn't changing a lot or we're not really hearing a lot from like the code, the core project itself. There are people who are still like around the world using this in production and using this for fun and they still need to learn this code. And, and so those communities are really help, helping keep that there. And so that's nice because education also fits in there. Uh, so as we're growing the foundation and then um, there's also the board. So the board uh, is this group of corporate members and representatives from the individual members of Node who uh, come together on a monthly basis uh, and work together in between those meetings uh, to sort of figure out and support the project uh, the way it needs to. And so their responsibility is more towards, you know, legal, making sure that the foundation is protected, because uh, I think a lot of people don't realize that as individual programmers, you know, we put license on things for a reason. And part of that is that you can be sued. Um, and so some of that liability is provided by the foundation, right? So um, that and like administrative stuff, you know, helping to encourage companies uh, that they should have people writing node full time in their offices. Uh, and that's really nice, because that means that a lot of us have jobs working in that because that can be hard to come by in other programming languages. I think a lot of people take that for granted. Yeah. I was going to say, like, I know that, uh, well, we worked together at IBM Watson and you were trying to like help shape a lot of the, the community stuff while we were there. Um, and then when you had the opportunity to join the node foundation, it just seemed like a perfect fix. I know how much you generally are not generally <laughs> genuinely care about users and community and like fostering growth of people that want to like further just, you know, get more people interested and then also help strengthen what's already there. So like, I guess, touching on that, what kind of things do you do at the Node Foundation to, um, you know, maybe help spread the word about Node to existing developers that may not be familiar with it and to people that are starting out because uh, i know that like is it isn't node the like largest growing uh open source community that we have right now out of any language um by sheer numbers yes so there's like yeah there's all these different ways to measure it it can be like interest like uh node is a lot of people are really interested in writing it and uh there's like a volume of people just by that quantity uh, node is really popular. And then there's really cool um, orgs like Rust, right, that are doing a really great job with community and documentation and teaching. 
Um, but there's just way less humans, uh, in that so far. So like, yeah, for us, it's that we have this great opportunity, uh, and a lot of people want to learn, but we have to make sure that we're, uh, as we've grown, we have to be more deliberate about what we're doing because we're not just growing to grow, right? We want the code base to be good. We want it to be stable. We want more people to want to contribute so that it sustains itself. And part of that is making it a, a better place to hang out and participate and also making it easier to write that code because, you know, I, I don't think there are concepts in Node that can get incredibly complicated and the learning curve can get steeper. But um, you have to know how to write JavaScript to write Node. And I don't think learning JavaScript is that difficult either. Um, but there is definitely a lot of places that we can work and improve both in JavaScript onboarding as well as Node onboarding to make that better. And so a lot of this year for me, the roadmap that I wrote out for education is education and community. It's, you know, we need to work on the getting started because that's, I've seen, there are other programming languages I'm really envious of because it's a huge investment. You have to spend, you know, time on multiple people working on this, on writing curriculum, on writing, getting started guides, on working on the website so that it is easily discoverable to find these things and having it in official places. You know, um, again, a conversation I was having this week was around uh, supporting the community in a better way. You know, we noticed that um, our, our online chat mediums like Slack and IRC, the survey data showed us that most people don't think that it's good quality, but they don't know where else to go to have that kind of interaction to get help. And so, um, yeah, I had a really enlightening conversation with the community committee yesterday about, um, maybe instead of choosing Slack or IRC as an investment for that, that the problem is not so much uh, we need a place to like go hang and like, you know, talk about, you know, LaCroix. <laughs> it's like, we need a place where we can go ask questions about node and get an answer that helps us. So it's support. It's actually like what companies are using, right? Like some companies yeah. use Slack, some use IRC, but if you have questions and you need to learn, who do you go to? Not everyone has this you know, an awesome network of developers that they can ask questions to. And so we need to figure out a way to provide that. That is a good point. Um, I, I think that it's interesting to point out, too, that um, you can be a contributor to shape the Node ecosystem without contributing code. Um, and I think that, like, a, one thing that I have always appreciated with the with what, like, the Node community does is they just want everybody to help. They want people that like can be technical writers for stuff. They want people that, you know, have done community building before or have done evangelism before to just like come in and make things more welcoming. And by doing that, I think that the code base will eventually be able to be more accessible to a lot of, you know, entry level or more junior people as well. Yeah, no, this is like, so, you know, something that we, you know, you want to, everyone talks about, like, we need better docs. Well, like, there's only so many hours in the day. And a lot of times, the people who need to be writing those docs are the people who are also writing that code, right? They need to be able, the person writing that documentation needs to understand what they're writing about. And so it's really tough, because we need to find a way, as you've said, to include more people with the talents that they have, right? Technical writing is a really special skill. And like, we need more of that. We could also use project managers. We could also use designers because, you know, design is a better user experience. It's also like, you know, aesthetically more pleasing to people and it can attract people, you know, to a project. It can also help display information in a different way than, you know, just words on a page. Um, and so like we're real, and, and then there's folks who like, maybe, you know, maybe it's, maybe they have a skill in sort of technical writing via translation, right? Cause that's not just going to be copying and pasting and changing out the words. It's like the nuance of the different languages that you've got there as well. And that's all, we need all of that. Right. So we're like, we need to start making, yeah. I mean, and so many projects need this. 
It's like, you need to start approaching it from the point that like, of course, developers are important to the project. They're writing code, but like maybe we've ignored the other roles for a bit. Yeah. So it's nice to be able to have this making space for everyone there and saying that we need all of you. Definitely. Node can be a, a little bit difficult to jump right in if, if you want, even if you want to write docs and you're a good technical writer or something like that. But uh, maybe yeah. a good advice is that there are, there's a long tail of projects and Node's documentation is better than, let's say, 99.5% of them or something like that. Uh, there is a project that you use every day that you know well uh, that needs better documentation. So yeah. if you want to just get your feet wet, like go try to submit a pull request that's just docs for someone. And I can tell you as someone who maintains a few libraries, mm. I immediately merge every pull request that looks like that, unless the information is wrong or whatever. But then I just <laughs> work with the person. But, but yeah. yeah, like it's so helpful when other people come and help on your project. So if if you have projects that like even multi-thousand star github projects have some lacking documentation and and it's it's pretty rare for someone to just say like no i don't want more information on how to use this so yeah. get your feet wet there and then uh kind of work your way up the ladder if you want yeah i mean the first thing that i look for when people are asking to help out with education stuff is um and that's a little secret i go and look at their repos and see if they've documented anything <laughs> Um, I'll, and see like how they're writing that out. Because if you like, it's just like, I can just tell so much more about your project if you've documented it. And, you know, if there's no documentation, I think that also says something too. And maybe in, unintentionally, but I just like, yeah, it's, uh, and if you're, you know, if you know enough, at least that you've accepted pull requests from people who wanted to help you like that's also you're encouraging people to to help maintain projects and you're doing a better job too as a maintainer i was talking and muted but i said definitely no. um so so what what is in your future for the the rest of the year like other than all of the, the things that we just talked about you know, what are you going to be going to conferences to try and help out? Because I know you were doing a lot with that last year. Like, what are you going to be involved with for, you know, the rest of the year that we see going forward? Well, the big focus right now, the my world is very much centered around uh, shipping the node certification. And this sounds a little backwards, but after that, it's going to be uh, focusing more on getting started in node. Um, and making sure that these resources for people to get to the point where they feel like they're confident in taking the certification exam, you know, we have to make sure that that's in place. And also looking towards programs that are providing these things, like informal education is how most people have learned Node up until this point. Uh, and there are exceptions to that, such as training, but, you know, community colleges, universities, they're not really teaching it. And there's a, a very small subset of code schools who are teaching uh, Node as well. So, um, you know, I love JavaScript. I love full stack JavaScript. I love the luxury of not having to context switch. And so, like, I want to see more people be able to do that because I really do think that that, that helps more people learn. So that's, that's the rest of my year, among many other things. <laughs> cool. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's going to be all that we're going to talk about for our segments. And now we're going to move on over to our picks of the week. Alex, do you want to go first? I'd love to go first. Uh, so my pick this week is called Prettier. It's by Jay Longster, James James Long, James Long, I think. Yeah, uh, Jay Longster. Uh, he put out Prettier uh, a little while ago. It is a code formatter. So much to everyone's surprise, there there are a lot of like code format checkers, ESLint and stuff like that. Or there used to be JSCS, um, and and like well, JS Hint and stuff would do some of it. But there wasn't anything that could take JavaScript and absolutely always perfectly re-render that JavaScript in the exact way that you wanted it to be rendered based on your rules. So um, there there is some prior art with like Go format. Um, and what's the other one? It's like, um, reformat, uh, maybe that's from 
something, uh, Rust or something. Anyways, uh, it is a code formatter, um, and it just went 1.0. And so it's actually already in use by a bunch of very important uh, sound. Uh, let's see, React, Jest, Immutable.js, Hall, Oculus, Cloudflare. I think Facebook uses it. Uh, like a ton of people already use this, and it's not very old. So it just went 1.0. It just uh, gained the ability to like have some options around whether you want semicolons and a few other different things, uh, which re-sparked some uh, 2009 conversations on Twitter. But uh, regardless, um, I think it will end up being a pretty standard tool that everyone just includes. Uh, and it can kind of get rid of the whole notion that anyone could ever commit any code that didn't follow your style guide. It's cool. Tracy, you can go next. Sure. Okay, so uh, my pick is free code camp. And I think at this point, a lot of people have run into it in some way or another. They're producing so much content, uh, which I find really helpful. They have really great blog posts, but in itself, it's sort of an online boot camp, um, and it has a ridiculous amount of coding challenges. And I, I, the way that I like the way that they've set it up because it really allows people from uh, who are starting from like nothing or next to nothing in terms of programming knowledge, uh, and it builds you up with structured challenges. Um, and you're, you can actually build up to like getting certifications for front end and back end and data viz. And then once you've met all of those hours, and this is free as far as I can tell, I've not experienced a, a paywall of any sort. Once you've met those hours, you get to move on to working on real world projects, pair programming with somebody else who is at the same point that you are. And this includes like you get agile user stories. So you have to learn about that, which I think is really valuable for getting a job. Um, and you're, the work that you're doing is on real nonprofits who have like requested this work happen for their websites or their apps. And then after that, you get like, a certification. So the team is uh, the team at Free Code Camp is actually helping you like with interviewing challenges as well as part of this. And I think at the point where you're done with this, you have over two thousand hours of work invested in this. So it's not a joke. And I just like I love how it covers the full range of skills and and challenges that you would face as a programmer um, getting started. So I think it's just really powerful. All right. Um, my pick of the week is actually from Stripe and it's not me sucking up to Alex. Um, they are starting this new digital magazine publication called Increment. And the uh, editor in chief is Susan Fowler, who uh, we know left um, Uber and is now going to be working uh, on this publication that is essentially going to be a quarterly publication that deals with um, the ins and outs of writing code and dealing with distributed systems and the interactions between teams and version control and code reviews. And I, I think that it is going to be really interesting and really insightful to people that, that may, you know, stick to their one siloed team and don't necessarily interact with other teams to get a really insightful and exciting way to find out how uh, good effective teams are structured and can work together successfully. And that's it for this week. So we're done. All right, that wraps up this episode of JS Party. Join the community in Slack with us in real time during the show. Head to changelog.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JSPartyFM. Special thanks to our sponsors, Sentry and TopTal. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner, and to Fastly.com to learn more. This episode was edited by Jonathan Youngblood, and the theme music was produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening.